This podcast is brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. The salary range for lawyers seems to be growing, even for some with similar work experience at the same office. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Lowe about what lawyers can do to successfully advocate that they're paid fairly. The global practice leader of the executive search firm Major Lindsay in Africa, he also is responsible for the group's partner compensation survey. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. Of course. Can you tell me in your line of work, what are some of the most common mistakes you see lawyers make in terms of negotiating compensation for themselves? Sure. I I think the biggest mistake lawyers make is not having the adequate information to figure out what they're really worth. Um, It's very hard for them in their firms, especially if they're at a firm that has a closed compensation system, to figure out what they should be making and especially what they should be making relative to their peers. Can you explain for us quickly what a closed compensation system is? Sure. Compensation systems fall into three main categories. Open, where everyone can see what everyone else is making at the firm. Partially open, where partners have some idea of what some people might be making, but they don't have ready access to the books, if you will. And then closed compensation systems, where they have no idea what anybody else is making. And in most cases, they're actually even forbidden from asking others about their compensation. They only know what they are making. Are there some people who would see a firm having a closed compensation system being a red flag and maybe that would be a reason not to join a firm? I think it's all a question of what you're used to. In in our um, experience, people who are coming from open compensation systems tend to feel more comfortable with that system, while others who've grown up in a closed compensation world are perfectly comfortable with that as well. Do you also see a generational difference in terms of how comfortable people are speaking about the amount of money they make? I think so. I think um, with the advent of the Internet, um, the younger lawyers are just used to having much more information than people did, say, 15 or 20 years ago. And so I think one of the greatest advantages they have is, is that access to the information and knowing what people who are like them are making. And we saw that you know, start happening 10 or 15 years ago when uh, websites started posting uh, first-year salaries, second-year salaries, uh, all the way up through eighth year. Um, and we're starting to see it a little bit more with partner compensation as well, although there just still aren't that many avenues to get that information for partners, which is why I started the partner compensation survey. Do you feel like information that is out there online about what lawyers are making, is it usually pretty reliable? I would say probably not. Uh, The reality is there are so few sources that some of the data points that you see may only be that, just a single data point. And if you assume that there are, I don't know, 50,000 lawyers as part of the AMLA 200, um, you actually have a, a very small sample size. Um, So it's really hard to draw meaningful conclusions from just single data points, which is, again, one of the reasons why we looked into trying to get, you know, much more data on the subject. Okay. So say you're not a partner, you're an associate, or maybe you're going in-house and there's a closed compensation system. 
What advice do you have for that person in researching about what they should be making? Well, I think one of the things they can do is talk with other partners at that firm or who were at that firm and get a sense from them as to how comfortable they are with the compensation scheme. Um, Do they feel or do most people there feel like they're being treated fairly? Again, there are some firms where you're not even allowed to talk specifically about the other person's compensation, but you do want to get a sense whether or not management or the compensation committee is appropriately compensating people for their performance. Could you see, too, where if a job candidate asks people that question, that might be viewed as a ding against him or her by the firm? It, it can. There are some firms that are legendary for not wanting to have any discussion at all about what they believe the appropriate compensation is. And what will often happen is the firm will say, they're just not culturally aligned. Um, apparently, compensation is just too important to them. And it's it's really hard because there's a really huge difference in power, right? Because the firm knows exactly what everybody is making and how much they're producing, whereas the individual partner candidate only knows about themselves. So it's um, it's something that we also see in the in-house world as well. Sometimes an in-house company will say to the candidate, well, what would you like to make? And that's a very difficult question to answer in the vacuum. Um, And so we always encourage our candidates to say, well, I'd like to be paid appropriately for my experience and in accordance with my peers. And since you know what my peers are making, you're in a much better position than I am to figure that out. And I'd like to have a dialogue with you about that. I have heard recently that the law firms are paying substantially less for lateral associates. Have you found that as well? And do you think that might be true for the lateral partners? No, I I don't think that is true. I think, you know, since so many of the firms are basically in a lockstep system for their associates, we've seen it be pretty constant across mm-hmm. the country. And for partners, it's not so much that they're, they're paying less for it. It's just getting over the gate to actually get hired is harder than it's ever been before. Going back again 15 or 20 years ago, and really the, um, the main differentiator was the beginning of the recession in 2008. That's when things really changed drastically. And so it's much, much harder for firms to make that decision. It used to be more of a practice group decision. They'd be able to choose whether or not they wanted to bring someone in. And now it really goes to the whole firm and the executive committee to decide whether or not they want to bring that person in. That's interesting. It also seems to me that within the firm, even with equity partners, there's sometimes a really big difference in what someone makes, like one partner might be making seven fifty, and the right. other one is making two million. You know, a few doors down. If you're the partner making seven fifty, is there any hope for you to successfully bring yourself up? Well, maybe not if, to two million, but maybe one million sure. <laughs> or one five. I mean, if we've learned anything from all the research that we've done since two thousand and ten, it's that in the vast majority of cases, your compensation is going to be tied to your originations unless you happen to be in a lockstep firm. And if you are in a non-lockstep firm and someone's making $2 million and you're making seven fifty, chances are that person actually is generating probably two to three times the amount of business that you are. And that's what is 
rewarded in big law today is origination. So it's it's possible. It's just hard. Um, it's a hard job. And those who are really good at generating the business definitely hold the cards. Interesting. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Jeff about what lawyers could do to successfully sell what they're worth and also what law firms do to make sure that the lawyer is not lying about what he or she is worth. These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management Software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on Amicus every day to run their practices. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journalist Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Jeff Flo about how lawyers can make sure they're receiving a pay that they're worth. Jeff, when a lawyer is looking for a new job, what can he or she do to make sure that the firm values the business they're bringing in? And also, what do law firms do to check and make sure that the candidate is being honest about the amount of work he or she has? Sure. There's a little bit of a leap of faith that has to occur in the lateral partner hiring process. Virtually every firm today uses something called the lateral partner questionnaire or LPQ, where they'll ask lateral partner candidates what um, their metrics have been over the last several years. That'll include compensation, billing rate, originations, collections, hours, and things like that. So the candidate will fill that information out, and that's you know very useful piece of information for the law firm, but you really are taking that candidate's word for it that those numbers are accurate. Um, we've also seen increasingly, although not a majority by any means, some firms will ask for a partner's uh, prior several years K-1, their you know, their partnership tax form. The sense being that if you are generating business at a certain level, you're probably being compensated at a certain level as well, and that'll be reflected mm-hmm. in your taxes. So it's not uncommon for it to happen, but it still is definitely not a thing most firms are doing at this point. And I think it's fascinating that most firms aren't doing that because it does seem like firms have been burned by someone who says, I have this amount of business. And Lo and behold, they don't, and they're out right. in like two years. <laughs> and, um, you know, every penny counts in, in this market. How come more firms aren't doing that? You know, I, I don't know. I think perhaps part of it is just a sense that maybe it's a little gauche to not take ah. your future partner's word for it. Um, and I think maybe that's one of the last vestiges of law as in the old time profession, mm-hmm. you know, gee, how could uh-huh. you, how could you not possibly believe me? Why would you want to look at my taxes? Um, right. We're all gentlemen. We never lie. Exactly. I, I would never lie. Um, another thing some of them are able to do, and again, they have to be careful about it for ethics reasons, is reach out to clients that a lateral partner mm. may have been working with for a long time. Um, not necessarily to ask the question specifically, are you going to come with the partner to our firm, but tell me about so-and-so as a partner and tell me about her and how long have you been working with her? Do you like her? Do you think they're great and things like that? So it's a very delicate conversation and it's something that a lateral partner won't want to have a firm engage in and 
unless and until they know um, an offer is forthcoming subject to a call, a reference call like that going well. Oh, right. Because I'm sure that the client can probably read between the lines, right? I think that's right. And I think the lateral partner also wants to be careful that they're not having the client speak with multiple firms because I think the client would feel like, what's going on? You know, where are you going? Why Ah, am I having this conversation uh with five different firms? So it's definitely something you don't want to have happen on the front end and you don't want to have happen with multiple firms. What's your advice for someone who's thinking of switching jobs if they're in private practice? Making sure that you get credit for what you're worth, but not overselling yourself. Because I almost think for jobs, we're kind of taught, you know, we should oversell ourselves a a bit or not, you know, but you don't want to look like a schmo once you get there and you don't have what you said. I think that's right. And I think you'll find, interestingly, sometimes the bigger problem is lawyers underselling themselves because lawyers as a group are naturally thought of as risk averse or cautious. And you'll often have them say, I want to under promise and over deliver. And that's really when you're searching for a new firm, that's really not the right strategy. What you should be doing is giving them your reasonable, good faith, best estimate of what you're going to be able to do. It is not the time to undersell yourself. Think of it as a disclosure um, document. If you were a securities lawyer, for example, you lay it out there. Tell them, this is what I've been able to do historically. This is what I reasonably believe will happen going forward. And then have a conversation with the firm about it. But they're so concerned about being thought of as giving false information that they can Mm -hmm. really shoot themselves in the foot by underselling themselves. I've seen over the years, it seems like there's a sense that women tend to undersell themselves a bit more, perhaps just because we're raised or society. Do you think, is that true? Do you think? Do you see women underselling themselves more than men for the candidates? I haven't personally, but I certainly hear that frequently. And I know that it's definitely a concern out there and something that the women I work with are very sensitive about. And it's certainly something that I discuss with the female lateral partners as we start the process. And especially given the results from our survey uh, over the last seven or eight years, you know, they are clearly as a group making less on average than their male counterparts. Hmm. Like what is that approximate average? Is that able to explain quickly? Um, No, because um, Uh I, I mean, part of it relates to the amount of originations that female partners on average, are generating relative to male partners. But it really begs the next question, which is why are male partners originating more business? Is the system set up so that male partners have more better access to existing firm clients or things being handed down from what were predominantly male partners to male partners instead of female partners? It's a topic that you can spend endless time exploring. Why is this happening? And I know that your survey tracks compensation for men versus women. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any studies that track uh, lawyer compensation based on race? Um, I'm not familiar with one. I mean, ours does as well. But the difficult part of that part of our survey, and we've been doing it since 2010, is the because the number of people of color who are partners in big law is so small, it's very hard to draw statistically meaningful conclusions from the data. And that's something that we always take great pains to point out uh, whenever we do the survey. 
and we try our best to reach out to everybody in the community because, again, I think more data helps everybody. But it's really hard when the total population of diverse partners is, I don't know, maybe 5% of all respondents. Yeah. And do you have a sense of whether lawyers of color tend to be compensated less in private practice than Anglo lawyers? Again, it's really hard to draw that conclusion mm. just from the data that we have. Um, I do I know... I do know from having been in the industry for 30 years, the biggest problem or an equally big problem is just the inability for law firms to retain people of color or diverse partners in law firms because so often they feel that there aren't sufficient mentors out there and people showing them the way. And it's harder to find someone like themselves to act as their rabbi or as their mentor or sponsor throughout the process. Okay. Now, and we've been speaking about partners. What advice do you have for someone who's a younger lawyer at the associate mm -hmm. level and selling themselves to get a better compensation, either in private practice or in-house or maybe even with a government job? Sure. Um, with respect to government jobs or even at law firms, again, because so often the position that they're filling has a designated compensation level, it's hard to find meaningful differences between firms or at the government positions, certainly relative to kind of the kind of differences that you see when you are a partner. What I would tell younger lawyers is keep your eye on the big prize. It's not whether or not you're going to make $5,000 more this year than someone else who's also a fifth-year associate, but are you positioning yourself to be successful, be elevated to partner, hopefully be elevated to equity partner at some point, and be making many multiples as a partner as what you are as an associate. Are you at a platform that is thriving? Are you in a specialty that is going to be valued in the years ahead? Are you different than your peers? Are you doing anything to differentiate yourself from your peers? I, the smartest associates are the ones probably whose parents, one or both, were in law or a similar profession who are able to explain to them before they ever show up for their first day how the world really works. Um, and they're at a huge advantage because they, they get it. They understand what they're trying to accomplish while they're an associate. And unfortunately, not everybody's in that position. So hopefully they find someone along the way who will teach them about things like that and looking at the big picture and doing what they can to make themselves as valuable as possible. Right, right. What are some red flags in salary negotiations that lawyers tend to miss? Well, I think one thing is, is bringing up money too early in the process and being overly aggressive about it. In my experience... A firm will, throughout the process, be mentally valuing what this person is worth. And at some point, at any firm, there's just going to be a number that they're not going to be comfortable with. And if you press too hard, one of two things will happen. They'll just walk away or, as many people are worried about, they're going to be putting a giant target on their back the moment they walk in the door and they're just upping the amount of pressure that will fall on them and, and the firm will be expecting bigger and better things from them almost immediately. Mm. And I'm curious if with anything, you see situations where parties on both sides of the negotiations just let it get too personal. 
maybe the candidate is too excited to, to go there. Maybe the firm is just, they've really been sold on this person. And if he seems too good to be true, they don't follow conventional wisdom and think, yes, he is this good. Right. And that that's where we can really play a useful role because we're talking with both sides and trying to make sure that everybody has a proper understanding of what the other side is expecting. It's really nice in many ways for the candidate to be able to not have to have that conversation directly. Again, because compensation is not something you know lawyers are talking about on a daily basis, and they might only have to negotiate compensation once in their lives. And frankly, some of them are just not very good at it. They might have unreasonable expectations, or um, as we talked about earlier, some of them might be um, too shy about asking what they are really worth and um, underselling themselves as part of the process. Okay. And have you seen much success with negotiating for more pay without changing jobs? And if so, is there a constant theme there that you can share with us? I think there is. And I think it's, again, it's something that you should undertake delicately, but understand what your worth is in the market. And if you know, for example, that you're generating several million dollars in business and if you've done your homework, you see that your compensation is several hundred thousand dollars or more below where people who generate that level of business typically is, you know, I think you should be able to go in and talk to your management and explain, look, I don't think I'm being fairly compensated. Now, in an open compensation system, it's easier, right? Because you can look at other people within the firm, see what they're making and see what they're generating and ask someone to explain it to you. In a closed compensation system, obviously, it's harder. You do get leverage, of course, as, as in any profession. If you go out and test your value in the open market, it's just, you know, it's a delicate thing to do because when you come back to them, they may or may not be excited to hear that you've been looking for another job and have already secured offers at a, at a level that's uh, higher than they're currently compensating you. So if you're going to do that, maybe be prepared to leave. I think so. Um, right. And in our experience, the vast majority of time when people do that, they do leave. I'd, I'd say over 90% of the time because they see that they are actually being undervalued on their current platform. And even though they might go back to the firm and then the firm say, oh, wait, you're right. Yes. Okay. We'll give you that money as well. It's very hard for them to get over the fact that, well, if I hadn't said anything to you, how long would this have gone on? Hmm. And do you think maybe that's kind of key for lawyers who are, you know, their compensation is important to them and getting more compensation is important is to always keep an open mind and be ready to go as opposed to the other aspects of many personalities and it changes hard and I'll stay here because it's safe. Sure. I think compensation is definitely one important component. And we've seen also in our uh, lateral partner satisfaction survey that what partners really value most is platform and culture. And everyone always assumes that money is the driver for everything, but it's really not. It's making sure that they're, they're a place that they're happy and also that the platform has all the pieces that they need to be a successful practitioner. And in fact, compensation, actually, every time we've done it, and we've done the survey now three times over 20 years, I think compensation is always factor number five or six in the thought process. Okay. And I think that's everything I wanted to ask you. Did you want to add anything else? No, I didn't. Thank you so much for having me today. 
Well, thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. Please tune in again next month.